welcome to another episode of The Hammer, an umpire podcast. I'm Kevin Weber. On today's show, we've got another umpire spotlight, this time of Hall of Fame umpire Tom Connolly. Also, I'm going to discuss how you might want to treat your assigners, since assignments are going to be coming out soon, if not already, for many of you. And I'm going to give you a little brief history of the drop third strike rule and why that is even a rule in the game today. So sit back and make sure your earbuds are working well or your speakers are turned up loud enough for this week's episode of The Hammer. For today's Umpire Spotlight, we're going to look at Hall of Fame umpire Tommy Connolly. Tommy Connolly was an early 20th century umpire, and um, the interesting thing about him, uh, among many things, is that he was born in Manchester, England in 1870, and and grew up there, at least until his early teens, before he uh, immigrated to the United States in 1885. His father was a stonemason, the entire family came, and uh, they lived a pretty good uh, living in uh, Nantick, Massachusetts, where a lot of Irish Catholics ended up uh, living. Uh, so when he was a, a boy, or at least the end, end of his boyhood here in America, um, he started to um, you know, take up baseball a little bit. He didn't play the game, he just was watching it, he was a bat boy for the local team, he um, started studying the rules of baseball. Um, reading by reading the edition of the Sporting Life, among other things. Um, unlike many of the early umpires who took up the profession once their their playing days were over, he never played any kind of organized baseball. So he turned his interest um, to the fascination of the rules instead. Um, and his rule knowledge uh, developed naturally, and um, it, you know eventually led to a very successful umpiring career, both on and off the field. But during the 1890s, Connolly umpired for the uh, YMCA club in Nantic, and his uh, professional career began in 1894. He was in the New England League. And so while he was there, um, there was a National League umpire by the name of Tim Hurst who saw him. And Tim Hurst was also Irish Catholic, and you know a lot of the, the immigrants kind of stood by their, um, their heritage at that time, and he recommended Connolly for his first professional assignment. So that ended up being in the New England League in 1898. And uh, eventually he joined Hearst in the National League um, in 1900 and was doing a, a pretty solid job there. But one of the things that uh, got on Conley's nerves was that he had a few, a few um, on-the-field rulings that were not supported by the National League president at the time, uh, Nicholas Young. And uh, by the end of the year, Conley said he was done with that and he, and he quit. Um, uh, fortunately for him, uh, his umpiring career was not over, um, and because organized baseball was really getting going, and the new American League was being started by Ban Johnson, and they were looking for umpires, and um, Connie Mack, the Hall of Fame manager of the Philadelphia Athletics, who hadn't really seen Conley umpire, but he was also Irish Catholic, so there you go, he recommended um, Tommy Conley. And he was hired for the inaugural 1901 season and in what was the junior circuit. That's why we call it that because, you know, the National League was the senior circuit because they were around first, right? 
So um, the one interesting thing about the um, the National League, and we've talked about Bill Clem before, is uh, because of Bill Clem, is because they use the um, inside protector and um, some other you know innovations as far as protective equipment too. But the inside protector, of course, lends you to uh, be able to see the the pitch at the knees a little bit better. Um, you know, because you're in the slot, uh, maybe you don't always see the corners quite as well, particularly an outside corner. Maybe you don't always see the top of the strike zone as well if you, you know, don't do things correctly. Whereas the American League started to go uh, with the balloon chest protector. Um, and this was mainly because of Conley. Um, and, of course, the balloon protector has its advantages and disadvantages too. One of the advantages is, well, you probably see the top of the strike zone a little bit better. And you're more centered behind the catcher frequently. Um, more so than being in the slot and you might be able to see the particular corners a little bit better as well all right so this was a big um, difference and uh, created a a rivalry between the two leagues for many years um, up until they merged um, which you know really as far as baseball goes is not too long ago so um, Connolly was known for several firsts um, you know being one of the first umpires in the American League uh, that's not too hard to imagine. Um, he actually worked the very first American League game in, in its history um, by himself, all right, because um, early on in the century, uh, most uh, umpires worked by themselves. He also um, worked the first games at uh, or the inaugural games at uh, Scheib Park in Philadelphia, at Fenway Park in Boston, at uh, Yankee Stadium in the Bronx. Um, he and Hango Day, who I talked about last week, were selected to officiate the first Modern World Series in 1903. And uh, Connolly also umpired in seven other World Series uh, along the way. He umpired in the American League until 1931, and then he retired and he was named the American League Umpire-in-Chief by uh, the league president at the time. And he served in that capacity until 1954. He was also behind the plate for four no-hitters, including a perfect game pitched by Addie Joss in 1908. And um, in, in which Eddie just like outpitched, you know, Big Ed Wasp one nothing. I mean, a couple Hall of Fame type pitchers there. All right. Um, his career spanned the time when umpires were games alone, all the way to the modern four man crews. Um, it also spanned the time when the profession was not, you know, highly regarded to what you know required to be, you know, the formal training and on the job experience and things that we would expect now from umpires. Um, Kindly, you know, describe working alone as not being fun. Um, he's mobbed many times. He says some umpires in, in the old days, you know, they, they didn't dare to, you know, make a call against the home team. And he noticed that they weren't around very long. Um, and that's why they were called homers and, and they had short careers. He was a small guy, um, reportedly about, you know, 5'7", 170 pounds. So I like that because I'm on the small side like that too. Um, he always dressed formally with a stiff collar, uh, with a tie split by a jeweled, you know, stick pen. Um, when he was asked about his preference for this formal dress, he said that, you know, he dressed carefully because he was representing an important phase of the American life, you know, though not physically imposing. Conley was, um, you know, he was able to garner the respect of players um, because of his knowledge of the rules, his fairness, his firm manner. Um, he was, you know, a devout Catholic and uh, didn't take any kind of um, uh, rough behavior during the game. And during the dead ball era, many umpires um, made their mark by, you know, ejecting players and coaches and managers and sometimes even fans if they needed to. And the primary reason for this was that they were working alone and and they had nothing to keep control other than, you know, the ejections. 
So like in his first year, Conley tossed out 10 guys. Um, but as he gained experience and uh, some respect, um, he seldom uh, threw people out. Um, m- many accounts of his career note that, you know, he umpired like 10 years or so without uh, ejecting anybody. Um, you know, Ty Cobb, you know, grew to uh, respect him. And he said that, you know, you could tell, you know, that, that you need to lay off of Tommy once his neck started to get red. But, you know, you can only go, he said you could only go so far with him. So from like 1901 to 1907, um, he primarily worked games alone. And he preferred to do so until the time came when the league, you know, hired another umpire to allow for the two-man system and later the three-man crews. And then as an umpire supervisor, Conley, he was skeptical over the need of a fourth umpire. And he said that three were enough. He thought that was perfect, as he put it. But, of course, the league won out. And, you know, there's a lot of umpires out there that prefer three-man over four-man. It is um, an interesting system and a fun system to work. So, you know, maybe there's some truth to that. Um, Anyway, despite his preferences, he later made that, you know, life for the solo umpire. You know, they had their hands full. Um, you know, it's hard to be in position to make calls. You know, he in, in describing plays during the dead ball days, he said that players took advantage of the single umpire, like you might imagine, leaving bases early on fly balls, cutting the you know corners on second and third base to gain an edge, you know, tripping base runners, you know, doing whatever else they had to do to gain an advantage. I mean, that's what baseball players do, right? So um, he noted that uh, you know most of these tactics came away, you know, and caused some altercations. So he said, you know, an umpire just, you know, they couldn't cover everything on every base. It happened no matter how alert you are, um, but he did the best he could. You know, he had no regrets about that. So, um, so even though Conley was on the smaller side, um, when he started to judge talent for umpire, and he always kind of preferred the larger umpires, he thought that they made a bigger impression on the field and uh, that shorter umpires had trouble working behind large catchers. Now, if you were working with a balloon protector, there's probably some truth to that, but if you work the um, inside protector like everybody does now um, and work the slot that's really not so much of a problem so he was a stickler on rules uh, when asked uh, to list what a good umpire makes he said if they're otherwise all right what you have to teach them is poise and another thing i tell them is to have is not to have rabbit ears never mind that wrecking crew in the dugout just go about your job of calling them on the field there's definitely some good advice in that so um Former uh, National League president and commissioner Ford Frick, he described Conley like this. He said, Tommy was a slight, quiet little man in an era when most umpires were big, brawny, and boisterous. He was a religious man, too, in an age of violent argument and colorful profanity. But he had a ready wit and a quiet sense of humor that usually quelled the serious distractions. So definitely um, something to be said for that. So that is our umpire spotlight this week. Tommy Conley, Hall of Fame umpire and one of the um, first two umpires to be inducted in the Baseball Hall of Fame in 1953. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.
For most of us, it's the off-season, and now it's time to start thinking about potential assignments that we might get for next season. Some of those are already starting to come out. I know I've gotten a few assignments for the spring already, and I'm sure some others have as well. Um, This is a a time to start thinking about how you handle your assigners and um, how you handle your job to be um, responsible for creating your own schedule and trying to be in demand for your assigners and also proving to them that you can do the job at whatever level you currently are working. As many of you know, you're technically an independent contractor and you're your own agent for promoting yourself and trying to get a you know a better schedule each year that's what everybody would like they'd like to work um, the bigger and better games and keep moving along as far as they can so what do you have to do to do that well first you you have to understand that it's nobody else's fault if you don't progress the way that you think that you should you have to own where you're at and own getting better and proving yourself so once you do that then that kind of frees yourself from blaming others which I see a lot of umpires do for their lack of assignments that they might get or you know why they aren't moving up like somebody else is Um, very easy to do to not look at yourself and say well what can I do better to improve all right now I know some of you are thinking hey you know I I have an assigner and and he doesn't like me and that's why I don't get games well maybe that's true maybe he doesn't like you but what is the reason that he doesn't like you what have you done in the past that has uh, hurt your relationship with him all right so definitely take stock in yourself and be truly reflective about it I can't say that I've always gotten the assignments that I wanted um you know, I, I would like to have progressed more quickly at, at certain stages of my career. I mean, I've been pretty lucky too, but it hasn't all been perfect. But I don't sit there and complain to my assigners about not getting something or expecting to get something from them. I just say, well, what can I do to get better? What, what do I have to do to prove myself? And, and I think that in, in time, I've managed to do that. All right. I understand, though, that it's a tricky situation. Because, you know, we have two main responsibilities as an official, whether it be umpiring or any other sport you might work. We have to perform the best we can each game that we're given, at no matter what level it is. But we also have to have a good working relationship with our signers in order to get games. Um, you want to be a person that's in demand. That's how you get those bigger and better games, right? And how do you get that? Hard work. That's what it is. Um, If you're not going to be the person uh, doing things to help out your assigner and trying to improve your skills as an umpire, going to camps, um, talking to people, studying, improving those things, then you're not going to get them. And you can sit there and blame an assigner for not giving you the games, but you haven't proven anything to him or her if it happens to be a female. So hard work gets you noticed by assigners and coaches and other umpires and all these people intermingle with one another and talk and if enough people are saying good things about you that's going to pay off for you so make yourself desirable 
to your assigners and to other umpires. You want other umpires to want to work with you. I can't say that every umpire loves working with me, but I've been told that, you know, people like working with me. So overall, I think I do pretty well that way. I managed to to get that down. Um, you're always going to tick somebody off here or there. You, you know, you just don't have the same personalities or something. But in general, you should get along with most of the people that you're working with. All right. Uh, signers want someone that they can count on, who's rock solid, even if they aren't necessarily the very best umpire that they have. Um, they would rather have that person that they can count on and not have to worry about if they give an assignment to them than the guy that maybe he's, uh, you know, got a lot of talent, but he's all over the place and you don't know if he's going to show up. You don't know what's going to happen during a particular game. You can't count on things, all right? Uh, most assigners, they're not big gamblers. They don't want to be gambling on somebody, especially if it's a, a significant game, um, to make you know to give that to somebody and, and then they kind of screw it up and make them look bad because that's, that's really what it is too. So you need to show you're a hard worker by always trying to improve yourself, all right? So that can be by going to clinics and camps. Um, that can be with working with newer umpires and helping out uh, your assigner that way. Um, passing on your knowledge and also maybe gaining another umpire who likes working with you because you know you're a good partner all right and that goes goes for you as well um you help out your assigner and show you're a hard worker by taking the games that nobody wants right that gets you on your assigner's good side and it will lead to better things i've seen it with me i've seen it with assigners i know when i've talked to them you do that when your name pops up for something potentially that you could get that you might really like you got a lot better shot at getting that because you're doing what you need to do to help the whole organization all right well you know games that guys don't want it might be because it's you know traveling too far it might be a level lower than what they want you know because maybe some other games pay better or something like that and maybe with teams that aren't particularly good but you got to take those games you know if you're available they give you that game you got to take it and do the best job that you can and not complain about it, all right? Um, you got to keep your availability open, all right? And you got to keep it up to date. There's nothing more annoying to an assigner that if you show that you're available and they send you a game and then you decline it and saying, oh, I forgot to block it or, you know, all those kind of excuses that people have um, that, you know, when games are coming around again and your name pops up, they're not maybe going to click on you because, you know, you've been causing them trouble. They don't want to assign it twice. Usually an assigner gets paid once to assign a slot on a game. And if they have to do it again or a second or third time, they don't get paid again to do it. You just basically made them kind of work for free or cut their pay in half if they had to reassign it. Okay. Now, things happen. Um, you know, there might be a, a tragedy in your family. Every once in a while, People got people do forget to block something. Okay, so yeah, that happens maybe like once, maybe once. Okay, I'll give you one time a year that might happen. But uh, other than that, um, it should be up to date. Um, I use a Google Calendar, and anytime I put something on that, and I know I'm not going to be available a particular day, I go right into my arbiter and block the day. All right. Um, I do it as I go. I know some people don't, but you know, they say, well, I, I don't really want to do that. You know, maybe I'll be available. Well, you do whatever way you want, but if you keep getting assignments that you have to decline, then obviously the method that you use 
is not very good. Okay, so figure out a method that works well so that your assignments are blocked as you go along. I mean, that's the only way I really know how to do it. All right. Um, networking. When you go to association meetings or you're meeting up with other umpires at whatever venues they might be at, um, you need to talk to them. I'm not talking about being a, a kiss butt or something like that. I'm talking about just, you know, talking to people, talking to veterans, talking about what you might need to do to move along, um, what they think you, you might need to do. Because, you know, it, as they say, 85% of your success or failure comes from your communication skills, all right? And that is what separates a lot of umpires from other umpires. I mean, because really when it comes down to it, the, the balls and strikes and the safe and outs between different levels, you know, um, within a particular level, that is. Um, it's not a whole lot different from a lot of guys. Um, but what really separates the guys that get the bigger assignments is that they are better communicators. And obviously, when they're on the field, they're better communicators and have better control of the baseball game. So those are some things to think about as far as uh, assigning and dealing with your assigner um, and trying to make his or her job as easy as possible. That's really what you should be trying to do. If you're doing that and you're helping them out when you can, then good things will come your way. I guarantee it. Um, If you're that person that is a problem, every time something gets sent to you, um, there's some issue always going on, then you're not going to get assignments that you think you might be deserving. And that's on you because, it's like I say, it's your responsibility to uh, control how you are perceived by assigners and coaches and other umpires. If you have any um, comments or feedback on that kind of stuff, uh, as I always say, feel free to leave me a voicemail or tweet me or send me an email and let me know what you think. And I'd be happy to talk more in depth about that at some other time on one of our podcasts. All right. The drop third strike. That's the topic of our rule segment for this week. And it's kind of a quirky rule that most of us don't really think about too often. Why it's even in effect. Um, but uh, if you look a little bit at the history, uh, you'll understand why. So a lot of us have worked some lower level games at some point in our career that they don't have the drop third strike rule in effect. And so if you get a, a strike on that, you know, a third strike and the catcher drops it, the, the batter's just out and the game moves along pretty well. It's certainly a rule that could be gotten rid of. But nobody ever really talks about it because I guess it doesn't really bother anybody too much. But uh, how does the rule read, at least in the official baseball rules? 6.05, it says, you know, a batter is out when a third strike is legally caught by the catcher. And then in 6.09, the batter becomes a runner when the third strike called by the umpire is not caught, providing one, first base is unoccupied, or two, first base is occupied with two outs. Now most of the time the drop third strike rule doesn't really have any effect on a baseball game. Probably the most famous time that it did was in the 1941 World Series uh, against uh, with the not against but with the Dodgers and the Yankees typical at that time. Uh, If you recall with uh, two outs in the ninth inning um, the Yankees Tommy Henrik missed the third strike 
um, you know, swinging and missing, followed immediately by catcher Mickey Owens missing it as well, which extended the inning and allowed the Yankees to score four runs to take the lead and win uh, that World Series game. So um, obviously that was quite costly for the Dodgers in 1941. But anyway, why why is this? What what's the, what purpose does it serve? You know, if if it's a penalty for you know wild pitching or is it a penalty for poor, poor catching? Why only on the third strike? You know, they talked about you know runners being able to run on other strikes this past season, which seems very silly because it doesn't seem like people really understand the rule. Um, but if you recall, in the early days of baseball, um, pitchers stood much closer and they were expected to throw underhand and serve a good pitch to the batter that he could hit. Um, eventually, as the rules progressed, there wasn't even called strikes. Uh, you were only out if you swung. It was only a strike if you swung and missed. And then, you know, there came the point where, okay, um, so what if we have a really bad pitcher or a really bad hitter and they can't hit it? What are we going to do? Because no action's happening. It's just like it stops. I mean, we expect that now, but they didn't really want that in the early games. They wanted the ball to be put in play as much as possible. So they basically said, well, if he swings and misses at the third one, then he can run, just like he would have put the ball in play. That's basically where it came from as far as when the game was developing in, let's say, the 1850s. Now, when they first put the drop-through-strike rule in, a catcher could uh, catch it on the first bound. And and, uh, actually, fly balls were like that for a while, too. It wasn't having to catch it in the air. They didn't really have very good equipment at that time. Sometimes they didn't even have gloves, say 1840s, 50s, 60s. Those kind of time periods are very small gloves. So if you were um, able to catch it on the first bound, it was actually a pretty good play. And then the person was out. You didn't have to be a direct um, in the air to your glove kind of thing like we have now. So um, eventually, um, as equipment improved, um, it was much easier to do that. And the main reason that they um, started to change it eventually is because it became very easy for a catcher to get a double play uh, because they didn't have the first base occupied rule. It's very much like the infield fly rule um, where you know a runner wouldn't know what to do if they're on first and second or bases loaded and there's a pop-up. Should they run? Should they stay? They could just drop it, turn the easy double play. Well, they could do that with the drop third strike. They would just drop it on intentionally so that uh, they could get an easy double or maybe even a triple play if there was enough runners on base. So as the equipment improved, um, they changed that rule as well. Until 1883, you could catch a foul ball on a bound and get an out. Um, And they kept this in because, you know, they still wanted the catcher to be able to make that play. But you had to catch a fair ball in play. And then eventually, uh, by like 1889, um, they got rid of that as well. Um, and that's kind of where we moved to. Now, you know, that, they basically changed it until, you know, if there was two outs, then the guy could run. It didn't really matter. But otherwise, you know, you, you had to catch it straight into your glove. Anyway, it's a rule that certainly could be uh, stricken from the rule books and probably wouldn't have too much of an effect on the game but then again it's not really harming anything so it's no big deal my question for you also is how do you signal a dropped third strike when you're working the plate um, I use the hammer technique and um, what I used to do is um, if it was a drop third strike I give like the safe sign but I've been uh, taught and told at uh, recent 
umpire camps that that's not the best way to do it um that you should put your hand out to the side you know like kind of a half you know safe sign uh, like with your right hand to indicate that it's a strike and that is also what's not caught and that indicates that to your partners as well and that's the other thing that uh, is a good discussion certainly in pre-games and stuff is how uh, you might want your wing umpires to uh, indicate if they see a ball that is caught or not caught um, usually I um, give the, the fist or the open palm uh, to indicate if I see a ball is caught or not caught clearly from my 92, well, actually 100 plus feet away probably. So um, those are some things to think about. That's a little bit of the brief history of the drop third strike and uh, something to think about as far as how you work your mechanics. And also when you're reading that rule next time, um, you might maybe want to look up a couple things about how that rule was put in in the, in the later 1800s. Well, thank you for joining me for another episode of The Hammer. I appreciate you sticking with me to the end. As I'm always saying, I would appreciate any feedback that you can send my way. You can do that in a variety of ways. Uh, One, you can leave me a voice message through the Anchor app, 60 seconds or less. Another way is send me an email, spinalfusion06 at yahoo.com. Or you can tweet me. My Twitter handle is at Kevin R. Weber, uh, 1B in Weber. Um, I'm looking to make sure this podcast is on as many platforms as possible. It's been a little slow getting it on Apple Podcasts, but I am hoping that it is on there this week. So look for that if that's your preference. It's already on Google Podcasts and Spotify and several other platforms Just recently, it was added to iHeartRadio. So whatever way you like to listen to your podcast, hopefully I'll have the hammer on that soon, if not already. Um, I'm looking to line up some guests in the future. Um, That's always a bit of a struggle, but I I think that that really adds to the show. Um, So look for those things. Send me any suggestions that you might have and any contact information with people, and I, I certainly will do my best to try to make that happen as well. So until next time, keep calling strikes.